17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. There's uh, just a tremendous amount of um, truth here that is applicable to our lives as we are given the privilege really to sort of listen in to Jesus praying to His Heavenly Father. Um, and we, we decided to sort of take this sermon and break it into two parts because Jesus prays for three distinct individuals during this prayer in John 17. He prays for Himself, and that's what we talked about last week. Uh, the first you know, five, six, seven verses uh, here in John chapter 17, He prays for Himself. And, and the main thing to remember out of that, John 17, Jesus prayed for Himself, the, the main thing that He was praying for was His own glorification. As He approached His Heavenly Father, He said, now's the time, the hour has come, glorify Me. Um, and there is a lot of stuff that we talked about with regard to uh, how that benefits us, how that changes our lives, the, that it tells us about who Jesus is, and it tells us a lot about um, the promises that are assured for us with regard to Jesus being glorified and hence us being glorified. But now we transition, we, we pivot in this prayer time to where Jesus is no longer praying for Himself, but He begins to pray for His immediate disciples, we call them His apostles, and He prays for all of those who would believe according to their testimony, their word, which is us. We hold in our hands this morning, you're reading John's Gospel, John is the Apostle of Christ. This is his testimony to the teachings and life of Christ. Uh, many, many, many people have come to Christ as a result of John's Word. So, he prays not only for John, but he's praying for us in this room here this morning as well. So, as we go to the Word, uh, we're going to pick up in verse 6 in John 17. Alright, so let's do that. Let's read John 6 uh, and onward in our John beginning chapter chapter 17, verse 6. Jesus prays to his Father and he says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You've sent me into the world so that I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them 
and I in them. Now look, we can read this, and we can read a lot of I and them, and they and me, and me and you, and you and me, and all this good stuff, and it can become very cyclical. We can get lost in the me's and you's and whatever. But I want to pull it apart this morning and help you understand exactly what Jesus was praying for when He was praying for you and I. Because this is significant stuff. In verses 7-8, Jesus tells us in the beginning here that who the believers are. Um, he says here that believers are those who um, God has given to Christ and Christ has received them uh, and He's given them the words of the Father and that they received those words and now they know truth. These are the people who are the believers. And in verses 9 and 10, Jesus specifies one group being the current apostles. He says, those you have given me. And then later on in verse 20, um, He says that there are those who believe through their word. That's us today. So that's the background. But what is Jesus praying specifically for His followers? What's he, what's he praying for us? Well, the first thing we see here is this. Jesus prays specifically to His heavenly Father that the Father would preserve you and I. That He would preserve us. And He says how this is supposed to happen. He prays to the Father and He says, I pray that you preserve them by your name which may or may not mean much to us on the surface, but what does it mean? What does the name of God mean? What could it possibly signify that Jesus would ask not only that we be preserved, but that we specifically be preserved by His name? Well, everything that God is, is His name. Everything about Him. His character, His nature, His it, it, everything about who God is is what preserves us. It's, it's the fact that He's, He's perfect. It's the fact that He's righteous. It's the fact that He's sinless. It's the fact that He's loving. It's the fact that He's strong. These are the things that when we are, uh, we are preserved in the name of, of our Heavenly Father, these are the things that are added unto us. We are righteous. We are strong. We are safe. We're good. And in the eyes of God, we're perfect. Only through the blood of Christ. It's His name that makes salvation possible. And it's His name that makes salvation stick. To, to say that we could lose our salvation, to say that we could fall away, is to say that the name of God is not strong enough to preserve us. And that would be not in keeping with who He is. God is certainly strong enough to preserve us. The writer of Proverbs said this in Proverbs 18, verse 10. He said, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. In the name of Christ, we have total, absolute security and preservation. The tower was the place in the, in the ancient times, you know, where a battle would ensue. The tower is where you would go. The tower is where you would be, you would find security, safety, and the tower is also where you would go to, uh, go on the offensive. Um, so as we run to the name of the Lord, we run into the safety. And he says this, not just preserve them by his name, but he says, preserve them not from falling away, he says, but rather keep them in eternal security. It, it is a concern in our hearts and lives today that that we can do something that would cause us to fall away from God. Not possible, according to the prayer of Christ. He prays that we would be preserved by His name, he that we would be preserved from falling away, and He also prays that we would be preserved from being overcome. Overcome. Overcome by what? The stuff of the world. I mean, uh, we, we are easily overcome by sorrow, 
we're overcome by difficulty, we're overcome by challenges, we're overcome by anguish, we're overcome by so many things. And it's easy to, to get to the point of depression or heartache and animosity towards us and we feel like we just want to throw in the towel. And that's not God's plan for our life. According to the prayer of Christ here, He says, preserve them from being overcome. And what does it mean to preserve them from falling away? He says, keep them from falling away from evil influence. Wicked teachings. Bad doctrine. Keep them, preserve them from falling away from evil itself in the form of Satan. He says in verse 15, let me read it one more time. He says, I I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Satan has no hold over your life and my life. He has no power that can uh, render us uh, lost in the name of Christ. Everything that God is is stronger than Satan. Everything that God is is total control over Satan. Anything that Satan does in your life must pass by the permission throne of God. We know that from the book of Job. So, when Jesus prays, it's almost like He's looking ahead and He sees all the stuff that is going to discourage us and challenge us and try and yank us down and convince us that uh, we're no good, all the stuff that's going to distract us, and He prays specifically for that, that we would be preserved through those things. If you ever have an opportunity to read C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters, you know, it's, it's hilarious to read this interaction where you, it's almost so true, it's funny, some of the ploys that um, Lewis writes about how Satan tries to distract and defeat the children of God uh, through the ploys of Satan. Um, and, and Jesus prays that, that we would have no part of it, but that we'd be preserved through it. Consider this very real example in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Again, the end of Jesus' life here, uh, and Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to die, and Peter all puffed up. He's like, you know, hey, no way, man. And Peter's just like, you know, not me, Lord. Not me, not me. In the midst of that conversation, we read this. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Alright, so stop, time out right there, before we read the rest of this. Jesus is affirming here the fact that whatever Satan wants to do in our lives must pass by the permission of God, right? Satan wanted to manipulate Peter. Satan wanted to force Peter out of the picture. Why? Because it was easily recognizable that this guy had a personality that was a tour de force. If, if Christ were to get a hold of this man's life, he would be a world changer. Satan comes to the Lord and says, I want to sift him. Sift him. What does that mean? What do you do when you sift, you sift impurity out uh, and leave that which is true? So, Satan says, I want to sift Peter. But Jesus says this, even before we get to John 17, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Here's the deal. What is Jesus praying for? Jesus is praying specifically for the fact, He said He prayed for Peter about this specific incident. Jesus is praying in the garden. Jesus is praying here in John 17. He's praying that we would be kept. 
He's praying that we would be preserved. That when these difficulties come, that when we're sifted, when we're tried, that when the heartaches of life come crashing over us, that God would keep us. That we would not be lost in the midst of all the struggles that we have in our life. And Jesus says to him, not, he doesn't say to him, you know what, Peter, you're not going to go through this challenge. You're not going to fail me. What he says is, after you failed me, I'm praying for your faith. That then when you do come back, you'll strengthen your brothers. That's important to remember in our life. God, God is not praying for the perfect person. He's not praying for perfection in your life. He's praying that in the midst of your faith you would be preserved during the disappointments, the failures, the heartaches, and the struggles of your life. And then in turn, use those things to make a difference, which is exactly what Peter did. Think about your own life. What... What Jesus is praying here in a very real way, if He were praying in modern day contextual sense with regard to our own lives, it might sound something like this. Dave, I know that tough times are engulfing you, but I've prayed for your keeping. He's saying, Dave, I've prayed for your strength. I've prayed for your perseverance. Now notice what Jesus didn't pray. He didn't say, Dave, I pray that you be taken out of this world and its difficulties. He doesn't pray to the Father that they be taken, that we be taken out of the situation, that we be taken out of the world. What Jesus prays is that we would be strengthened in the midst of the difficulties. There's too much bad Christian doctrine out there that teaches that if there are difficulties in your life, you're doing something that's disappointing God or you're doing something that is uh, wrong. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes God allows the hard times in our life in order that our faith might be affirmed, that our faith might be strengthened. And it's important to know that in the midst of those times, the Lord has prayed and continues to pray for us to be strong during those difficult times. And one last thought here with regard to God's preserving us. Note that Jesus adds to the fact that the Father's name is the same one that has been given to Him. See, you say, well, how do we know that the Father is equal with the Son? That the Son is equal with the Father? How do we know that there's a real Trinity thing going on here? Because Jesus says, your name is the name that was given to me. We're all one and the same. Every, every specific aspect of nature and quality and character and gifting that is the Father is in the Son. Your name is my name. I love that. So when we pray in Christ's name, what are we praying? Everything that the Father has for us. Now, Jesus prays for the Father to preserve us, which is encouraging enough. But then He also prays, point two, that, here we go again, it's almost like a gang, a, a clanging symbol here. Jesus prays that we would be unified. that the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, would be unified. He says in verse 11, And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's a pretty high bar that he just set there. That the church would be one, even as we are one. And then a little bit later in verses 22 and 23, He said, The glory that You've given Me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may, be perf they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. 
If by this point in John's Gospel we are still missing the heart of unity in his church, we may not ever get it, quite honestly. He has beaten this to death. Now, John 15, now John 17, that we love one another, the world's going to know that Christ is in us, the world's going to come to Christ as a result of the love that the body has one for another. Here he says, I pray that the church will be unified, I pray that the church will be one, and he even says the benefit of that is what? Verse 22, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. We don't consider this uh, aspect enough. But the better the job that we do loving one another, the more unified that we are in Christ and towards one another, the more effective our witness to the lost world is going to be. Why would God possibly want to save somebody into a body that is dysfunctional and hateful and disunified one to another? God's not going to save a child, go to all that work, die and redeem a child of His and then put him into a hateful, dysfunctional, broken home. So if a church really wants to render its witness useless, just harbor bitterness, anger, resentment, and disgruntlement towards one another. And then go and try and share Jesus with everybody you want. And see how ineffective it is. Um, Two weeks ago during the Lord's Supper, we read Paul's words on unity. So, Paul got it. And now Jesus prays for just as much again. So in light of the previous point on God preserving us, this point is magnified. Because here's the deal. Why is it important that we're preserved first in order to maintain unity? The evil one is number one ploy in destroying God's people is to wreck the relationships between God's people. He's going to come into a place like this. He's going to come into any healthy environment where believers are relating one to another and He's going to do everything He can to cause people to doubt one another, uh, misread one another, uh, speak harshly to one another, and then eventually render those relationships dysfunctional to where we don't get along or we just choose not to engage one to another when we come to church because it's easier that way. It's easier to not fellowship with somebody. That way, we don't have to relate one to another. We can pretend that we're okay. And Satan wins in those situations. We must remember that we are preserved for such situations. Um, I believe with all my heart that the local body of Christ, a church, relationally burning to the ground is at the heart of who Satan is and wants to be. He wants to see a disunified church crumbling at its core, which is relationships. Because then, he believes he's secured the victory. So why must the church be one? Because the Lord was leaving and the mission was at hand and the evil forces would muster against who? His body. The evil for the manifestation of Christ on earth today is this group of people right here. And what's the evil one going to do once Christ is ascended? He's going to go after the church with everything he's got. And he's going to do that through relationships. And he's going to do it through these words. Lust. Pride. Well, that person doesn't know what they're doing, but I'm glad I know what I'm doing. Good thing I'm in the church because that person's a big old fat disappointment. Selfishness. Why isn't that person doing it my way? My way is more important than their way. And the church, Satan's going to use the, 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 the tool of anger. He's going to allow 
bitterness and, and anger to just fester inside of us. Not talk it out, just avoid. Until eventually there's an explosion. And good thing we have email now because we can really do some good communicating now that we have email. That's a healthy relationship right there. Let's just post on Twitter how we really feel about somebody. And hurt. Somebody hurts us, we don't talk about it. We act like we're supposed to be perfect individuals. Somebody hurts us, and we just run the other direction. Rather than engaging in the discussion or saying, you know what, maybe I misunderstood, um, but I'm going to I'm gonna uh, avoid talking to that person about my feelings. I, they, they've wounded me, but that's okay. Maybe I just won't relate to that person anymore. That would be easier than having to talk about it. I'll just wallow here in my hurt, feel sorry for myself, and then that's just one more relationship that's non-existent in God's church. And on and on and on it goes. I mean, you know the stories. You know the way it happens. These things just become toxic. We're my personal favorite. Like in our home, we've been having serious discussions about less texting, more talking. Nothing. Let's be honest. We all are in the digitally advanced world now, right? Most of you text on your phone at some point in time during the day. How many times has it happened to you where you texted something just as innocent as anything in your heart? I mean, like you texted, and it's completely misunderstood. And then all of a sudden, a relationship's on the brink, and you're like, but I didn't mean that at all. I just, you know, sent a simple text message or an email. Let's be a talking people again. That's why it's so important we actually... That's another fear of mine as a pastor, is that the, the digital relationships have replaced any need for personal relationships. We feel like we've posted enough stuff on Facebook this week. We've checked in enough on Instagram to see what's going on in that person's life that if I miss them for the next few weeks, not a big deal. Instagram, Facebook, texting, not a relationship. There are little tools that maybe can help, but at its core does not make a relationship. And oftentimes just kind of feeds into misunderstanding and um, ongoing problems. Twice Jesus says the exact same words here, that they may be one as we are one. Man, talk about a huge prayer request. Jesus wants our relationship in the church as body of believers to be at the same level as the Father and the Son. Whoa, how are we doing there? That's a huge request of unity. But think about what unity means. What does unity mean? Just like the Father and the Son, we are to be one, and if you have a pencil, you can write these down. We're to be one in three ways. We're to be one in nature. We're to be one in character. We're to be one in purpose. Nature. So many at our core, in our nature, it's significant sometimes to just simply take a step back and say, who are we? We are broken, sinful, equally redeemed people. There's not one person in a relationship in this church that is in any less need of the blood of Christ than another person. That's who we are. From your pastor on through all of you, broken, poor decision-making, lacking, shallow, um, self-doubting, hurting people who need the blood of Christ. I had a... Uh, I was telling Nancy this yesterday when we were painting. Uh, I have a friend who I, I went to the Holy Land with and and we got to know one another, and he has a blog, and he doesn't, he's not one of those guys that, you know, blogs to be famous, but sometimes junk just comes out of his head in the middle of the week, and he feels like he needs to write it down. Well, people started reading it, 
And one of the things he said this week is something that he's been learning about expectations. He said, I, I, I look at the church and sometimes I judge people based upon them not doing things the way I do things. And he said, I realize that that's sinful. Uh, the way I would organize an event isn't the way another person organizes an event. Some people operate in the comfort zone of detailed, long-range planning. Right, Nancy? And some people operate in the comfort zone of, I like to fly by my the seat of my pants a little bit more. But you know what? God qualifies both. He, whatever you're gifting, God has given the gift. Some people are quick on their feet. Some people aren't. Some people like to come up... I did a, uh, I spoke at the varsity sports banquet at my son's school. And even, the, after they announced that, after they announced Coach Larry and Mindy Snyder are going to come up and share a little bit about the team, my wife grabs my arm and says, I don't really have to go, do I? I mean, we're in the front row. I mean, the moment when we're supposed to go up and speak and Mindy grabs me and she's like, please don't make me speak in front of people. Um, God qualifies and gifts each one of us differently. The moment we start to judge another person based upon the way God has gifted them because they're not gifted the same way we are, we're sinning. And he said, I, I, I had to learn this lesson this week because I found myself expecting people to show up, plan, coordinate, and follow through the exact same way I would. And it was wrong of me. I thought that was very eye-opening. It was good for me to hear. But at the core, we are all born again, new creatures in Christ, and God has wired each one of us differently. That's our nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I said nature. That's how we're unified. We all start on the same page, don't we? Sinners in need of grace. Sinners who need to be redeemed. But then I said character. Character. It's important to remember that we are also all a holy, pure people trying really hard to deny the flesh and trying really hard to work in the Spirit. We don't do it all the time perfectly, but we are people who are moving in that direction where we're trying really hard to follow the leading of the Spirit. We're trying really hard to deny the flesh. Later on in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's the call of Peter to a, a life of holiness. And then in Titus 2, verses 11-13, to 13, Titus said, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness our godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a journey we're all on. We're trying to live a holy life. We're called to live a holy life. That's what it means to be a redeemed people. Nature, we are unified in nature. We are unified... Oh, and that... It gives us a right, too, to hold one another accountable to how we're doing in that um, godly living. But we're called to nature, we're called to character, we're unified in that. And we're also unified people in purpose. And maybe this is one of the biggest things here. Simply put, we're people committed to giving our all, everything that the Father asks, 
in order to take the message of salvation to the lost world. We, we don't exist simply to know one another. We exist for the Great Commission, which is to see more people saved and brought into the family of God. John 20, Peter would later say, or, John, or Jesus would later say in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then in Matthew 20, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We give of ourselves. That's our purpose. One final note here in verse 26. Look at this. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He says that the love between the Father and Son may be in us. You can kind of devote on that this week, but what would that love look like? What kind of love did the Father have for the Son? And what kind of love did the Father have, or the Son have for the Father? And is that the love that we have one for another? Because that's what Jesus was praying for. A mutual love between one and another. Alright, so point three. Jesus prays that we will be preserved. Jesus prays that we will be unified. And Jesus also prays that we will be sanctified. Sanctified. Let me explain this word a little bit. It's It's one of those... Fancy Christian words, a nice theology ring to it, but what does it mean to be sanctified? The religious thought that cleansing ourselves is something expected of us, Jesus prays for something different. The thought, the religious thought of the day up to this point was that man sanctifies themselves. Man will clean themselves. That just isn't going to happen. It's like, using the same dirty mop over and over again to try and clean your floors. Uh, not going to happen. Jesus prays for something different. What does He pray for? He prays that God would cleanse us. And that's a great starting place. Sanctify. The word sanctify is a Greek word, hagiason, and it comes from the Greek word hagias, where we get the word to purify or to consecrate or to cleanse. Like you're going to use an instrument in a uh, ceremony or a uh, some sort of service, holy service. You would clean that item so that it was pure enough to be used in holy service. That's what consecrate means. It's, it's to set something apart as special for God's work. So when Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify us, that's what He's praying. He's praying that we would be holy instruments, cleansed by the Father, set aside for holy work. Is that who we are? Is that the way we go about living our lives? The wording here is is powerful as well, the way Jesus words it in His prayer. He uses a form of the verb that is imperative of God with the expectation of results. That's what the verb is... is conveying that this is an impar- that the son would even pray to the father and say sanctify them and the, in the vernacular it might read this way father i expect that you will cleanse them and that it will absolutely be profitable that's what he's saying man why live defeated when you got christ praying that for you Jesus is demanding that the Father cleanse us with a holy cleansing that we're so useful in a holy sense that it's undeniable. And yet we walk around as if we're useless. That's Christ's prayer for you and I. Sanctification looks like this. Biblically speaking, there's, there's, there's really there's like two simple aspects to sanctification. The moment you receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are immediately sanctified. You're cleansed. We know this according to Hebrews 10.10. 10. 
It says, by this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there is an immediate cleansing that takes place in you. The Father looks at you, He sees a clean life. Now you look at your life, do you see a clean life? Nope, that's where the other aspect of sanctification comes in. There is, uh, this word's been hijacked, so I kind of hate to even use it in the pulpit, but there is progressive sanctification. There's the ongoing process of God cleansing you on a daily basis for the work that He has for you to do. We know this is true from 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul writes, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There's the progressive process. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're, you're, you're climbing the glory stepladder here as God sanctifies you. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And later in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul elaborates on this a little bit more when he prays. He says, Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is praying for those who are already believers that they would be sanctified in this process to completion. Here it is. The believer allowing the Holy Spirit to do this work in them and not fighting against it. You can tell when a person is in a healthy place versus an unhealthy place. The healthy believer is the one who welcomes sanctification. Anticipates it, looks forward to it, embraces it, relishes in it. A lot of times marginal, peripheral Christians or those who are Christians in name only, uh, they kick against the sanctification process. Because sometimes cleansing is tough. It means God, allowing God to eradicate something from your life. It means going to somebody and communicating to them, another believer, when you really would rather just keep to yourself. It means getting honest in a relationship. It means loving somebody who's unlovable or unlovely or requires extra grace. It's all part of the sanctification and growth process. But not the form by which he asked for sanctification, or the, the form is the significant thing here. Let me share this. I, 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 I wasn't sure I was going to read this, but I, I, this week, on several occasions, um, I don't even own the song, but I think God was trying to remind me of some things. I'm driving along, and um, this song, Clean, by Natalie Grant. Have you heard this? Oh, man. Great song. I posted it on Facebook yesterday because you know anything that's important goes on Facebook. Uh, I I want to share it because the song is so much about the sanctification aspect of God. And I just want to share with you the lyrics if I could. She writes this. She says, I see shattered and you see whole. I see broken but you see beautiful. And you're helping me to believe. You're restoring me piece by piece. There's nothing too dirty that can't make me worthy. You wash me in mercy. I'm clean. What was dead now lives again. My heart's beating, beating inside my chest. Oh, I'm coming alive with joy and destiny because you're restoring me piece by piece. There's nothing too dirty that can't make worthy, that you can't make worthy. You wash me in mercy. I am clean. And then the song closes with this. Washed in the blood of your sacrifice, your blood flowed red and made me white. My dirty rags are purified. I am clean. It's almost like reading the words of the Apostle Paul. Somebody who looks at their life and they see filth, but they understand that they are being cleansed daily, sanctified. Anything that we cling to that we feel is just too dirty for God God reassures us that, no, 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 I can clean that too. That's the beautiful aspect of sanctification. We are a people 
who are being sanctified. And this is what Jesus prayed, that we would be sanctified in the truth. He, he prays very specifically how this is supposed to happen. Right? Through God's truth that we would be sanctified. This is the way God works. This is two things. First, it's the revealed truth of God in Christ. We look at Christ and we understand that He is the Savior of the world. He is the atoning sacrifice of God. The Lamb of God who came to set us free from our sins. That's God's revealed truth. But then there is what we call God's documented, specific truth according to His Word that we're reading out of John's Gospel today. Every time we come here, we open ourselves up to the opportunity of sanctification. That's why it's, it's important daily that we go to His Word and we read it and we look in a mirror and we ask God, what is it that You can cleanse in me today? What is it that needs to be improved? How can I be made whole? How can I be more useful for You? So, if we want to experience life change, if we want to experience the full abundance of sanctification, we, we have to start here. As Christians, we start here. Don't start with somebody's opinion or something that was pinned on Pinterest. Start with this. Um, go to the Word. Ingest it. Marinate on it. And watch the sanctification take place as God's Spirit teaches you from it. Lastly is this, and this is real quick. Jesus prays for our 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 preservation. He prays that we be unified. He prays that we be sanctified. And He prays for our eternal life. Even as He's going to the cross, even as He's preparing to fulfill this great mission, Jesus prays this, that they may be with Me. What does that mean? It means that we, simply put, it means that when you die, you go to heaven with Christ. Very Sunday school answer, but very, very important. This is in keeping with exactly what He promised His disciples in John 14. See if these words sound familiar. Look, at the end of... Let me read it again. At the end of of John 17, He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them, and I will continue to make it known. Um, The love which You have loved Me may be in them, and I in them. But right before that, uh, let's see. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Now I'm lost. now I completely lost it. I lost my nose. Well, let me read to you John 14. He says, "In my Father's house are many rooms." He's talking about eternity in heaven. If I were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may also be. That's just what He prayed to the Father, that they may be where I am also. Um, Verse 24 is where He said, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am, to see My glory that You have given Me. This This is it. Folks, in eternal life, we will see the eternal glory of Jesus Christ for who He really is. As we journey through the difficulties of life, as we prioritize the things um, in our life, let us always remember that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. That was His mission. It wasn't to to be a good teacher. It wasn't to, to heal people with blindness or to raise Lazarus from the dead. The purpose that Jesus came was to seek and save the lost. He came to die on a cross. He came to sanctify you, justify you, whatever fancy word you want to use. He came to uh, make sacrifice for your sins that will keep you out of heaven. Anybody who is a sinner is not deserving of heaven. And that's all of us in this room. But Christ took that away on the cross. For those who in faith trust in Him, you've been made clean in God's eyes. And now what God does in your life is continue to uh, make you holy, sanctify you, set you apart for work to do. Um, 
and the guarantee of eternal life comes from the work that Christ did on the cross. I can... It's, it's becoming much easier in today's culture, honestly, and, and this may be very abrasive to say, but it's becoming much easier in today's culture for me to quickly tell where a person is with their walk and to tell where they are in their relationship with Christ. Uh, you can speak with somebody and, and, and begin to share the things of God and talk about the things of God, and you can see them check out or you can see them double down. Uh, I love it when people double down. I love it when they... They get as excited, if not more excited, than I do. Um, you can tell by the way they prioritize their relationships, the way they prioritize their calendars, the way they prioritize their finances, the way they uh, prioritize everything in their life. Does this start with the gospel of Christ and then they build off of that? Or does it, does it start with the pleasing of man and then they add Jesus in somewhere along the way? Jesus prayed not that we would be the add Him in along the way, but that we would be the people who are sanctified in Him and completely preserved and committed to Him and that the world would be changed in His name as a result of who we are here today. Um, so I think that's why I get so... I just love church planters. Every church planter and missionary is different. They go about their tactics different. There's not a perfect one among the bunch but they've become so impassioned and they've, they've fallen in love so much by what Christ has done for them that they can't imagine doing anything else except laying down their whole entire life in order to make a difference, even if it's just one person. When a church planter goes and plants a church, they have no idea how it's going to turn out. It may be a congregation of 30 in the sticks somewhere, or they may strike a chord in a community and end up a church of seven, eight hundred people within a couple years. But both those church planters have something in common. They went in order to win some, whoever those some are. They've trusted in God for that. Same thing with our foreign missionaries. And it should be the same thing for people in God's church. We're just ready to lay it all down and go and do whatever it is that Christ has called us to do, knowing that Christ prayed for us in advance. We are empowered people. It's already been taken care of. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord.